0: Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday morning messages are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, enjoy the message. All right. And uh, and again, I want to mention also, I finished up the sermon series, A Hope in a Future. And it's not the last you're going to be hearing about these truths or or especially what I feel like this, that whole series was launching us into. Uh, leaders will be hearing about that tonight. But if you missed any part of that series, I encourage you to go back and check that out. Because as I said, that all was very important to building the whole message that God had for us during that time, especially as we discussed the spirit, the soul, and the body. So I encourage you to go to, our, to, to the app or our website, and you can check that out. But today we want to talk about in the Garden of Decision, in the Garden of decision. What is the definition of a Christian? I think most of us know what it means to be a Christian. We're pretty confident as well about what it it takes to become a Christian. Confession of faith, believing in our heart, confessing it publicly, being baptized. But to walk it out, this Christian journey is a lot tougher, isn't it? It is the place where we live every day. In the Gospels, we find a garden. And this garden is one that apparently was a favorite of Jesus' having visited it often. Perhaps it was because it was symbolic of the first garden. It was a place of peace and comfort. Likely, it was a place where Jesus would teach the people in a peaceful environment. And we all certainly get that. This garden is given a name, the Garden of Gethsemane. It literally means oil press probably was a place where they pressed the oil because it was at the foot of what is called the Mount of Olives. There were carefully tended olives on this tree, or on this mountain, on this hillside, and in this garden. As a matter of fact, you can go to what they think is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane in Israel to this day. At least a couple of different locations that they think it possibly is where it was. and uh, But a lot of those trees, those, those olive trees that are there have been dated back, some of them, at least three of them, back to 1,000 years old. And then in studying the root systems of these trees, going back many hundreds of years, possibly even to the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as I said, taught here at the, this Mount of Olives, as we know, we read in the Scripture that he did. And it's thought that, again, these trees are ancient in the places where Jesus actually leaned up against, sat next to. So this garden is symbolic to so many things of so many things but for our purposes today it represents a very important time in each of our lives. What do we do when we are pressed? What do we do when it is the out when the outcome of these pressed moments these struggles these crisis moments what do we do when all that we believe is challenged and we we begin to doubt what do we end up Today, I want to talk to you and share with you and share a message with you from Mark chapter 14. I want to look at this journey that the disciples were on right in the middle of a very critical time of their lives. And we're going to look at this and what it means for us. So let's look at the story. So Jesus ends up at the Garden of Gethsemane after having already had the Passover meal. We know what took place there. Jesus was sharing symbolically and talking about his death that he knew was coming. He was hinting to them what was coming, and in, in some cases even you know, spoke definitively about. But we get the impression that the disciples are, are kind of confused. They don't really know fully what he's talking about. Matter of fact, when he finally says, look, I'm going to die, but in three days I'll be raised from the dead, Peter rises up and says, no, Lord, we're not going to let that happen to you. So I think they're all still in denial very much in denial. They've heard Jesus talk in symbolic terms before. I think in their minds, now this is all just an analogy, some big analogy. And so Jesus then takes him to the Garden of Gethsemane, again, a familiar place for them, place they've been often. And Jesus is obviously distressed. And he says, I've got to go pray. So he goes by himself and he prays and he asks the disciples to, hey, to be praying. Would you guys be praying as well? He goes away, comes back, they're all asleep. He wakes them up. Guys, come on, can't you pray with me? Goes away, comes back, they fall asleep again. Could you not pray with me at least one hour, guys? He goes away and we know the story that we, we get the account of Jesus there and it says that he asks the father, Lord, if there's any other way that you can fulfill the vision, the purpose, is there any way that you can redeem mankind without me having to go through what I know is going to happen? Now, this is an amazing thing. Jesus, being God, having known all things, knowing exactly how everything's going to play out as written in the book of Isaiah, he knows what he's going to suffer. He knows what's coming his way. And yet he comes to the the Father and says, Lord, if there's another cup." I'd sure like to drink that one. But not my will, but yours be done. He comes back the third time, and guys are still sleeping, and he wakes him up. He says, guys, guys. And he goes, it's all right. Don't worry about it. The time has come. The disciples again fall asleep. He revives them. And in this situation, finally, Judas arrives in a manner that will allow Jesus to be captured without potential upheaval among the people. So they choose a, a quiet place in the garden. They choose at night when nobody would be around. And so Judas has st- strategically set this up because he knew where he could find them. He knew where they would be. While in Jerusalem, Jesus would make himself, he'd, he'd make it to that garden. So <clears throat> Judas comes, and he walks up, and we'll, we'll get into the more of this. Then during this time, what we find is several things begin to take place. It's kind of, you know, it all happens fairly quickly. So the soldiers come around the, the corner. The guys are still somewhat asleep, and then here comes the soldiers. got Judas in front. They're probably thinking, what's going on here? Of course, Jesus is very calmly knowing what goes on. The first thing that happens is they see Judas, the betrayer, and he walks right up to Jesus, and he kisses him on the cheek. And that, of course, is a signal to the soldiers to say, the one I kiss is the one you want. Some of these soldiers have never seen Jesus. They don't know what he looks like. They don't know who he is. And yet they don't want to make a bad move because they've heard this guy does miracles. They heard this guy is an amazing miracle guy, and he's slipped out of their hands before. So they're like, please let us know so we can nab him and get on this right away. That's what Judas does. Then one of the disciples strikes the servant of the high priest with a sword it, it, the scripture says in at least one occasion that it, it cuts off the ear of the high servant of the, the the high priest's servants cuts his ear off, and jesus says ah, uh-huh, there 'll be enough of that and he reaches over and heals that ear. Then another disciple flees naked one particular they, 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 they mention this in particular because and it makes you wonder who it was I guess we 'll find out one day but he, he's he 's got apparently a a, a, a robe on or some kind of a linen robe, and he runs. It's gone. He takes off, and all the other guys are just shocked, and then they all hit the road. Yeah, I guess we would be, but anyway, all the rest of the guys scatter just as quick as they can, just like cockroaches when the light comes on. Gone. Then we find out that Peter, who was initially one of those that ran away, comes back, Kind of sheepishly remembering his empty words, because he wasn't he the one that said, "Lord, no way this is going to happen. I'm not going to let you be taken. We're not going to let you die. It's just not going to happen." Jesus turns on him. He says, "Get thee behind me, Satan." And then, right up to the very end, he says, uh, "Lord, this we're not. This is not going to happen." And he goes. I'll never turn from you. He goes, you know, you're all going to turn from me. You're all going to deny me. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, Peter says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he looks at him lovingly says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter initially runs, but then he makes his way back because those, those words, his, his words of commitment ring hollow in his, in his, in his head. And he realizes, I, I can't do this I'm not gonna let this come true. So he makes his way back to the outside of the, the temple area or the, the courtyard of, of where this is taking, the colonnade where this is taking place. And he's out there warming himself by the fire. And of course he is, you know the story. He's noticed on two or three occasions that he was. Matter of fact, the moment he started to speak and talk with someone, his Galilean accent came out and they said, Yeah, you're one of them. I was just with the the, the the arresting group. You're one of them. You were there. And he denies him three times, and then the rooster crows. uh, Peter, again, his heart filled with despair, flees away. So I want to look at this story and give us a thoughtful application and look at what takes place, just kind of break down the anatomy of an absolute catastrophe. And, And what can we extract from this this morning? What does God have for us? I want to remind you that this same Jesus was the one upon which Jesus said he would build his church. Now, I want you to to see this. Jesus is all-knowing. He's God. He's predicted everything that has happened. He knows what's in Scripture. He knows people before they even show up. He knows what people are thinking. Just read the Gospels. You see, Jesus is acting very godlike all the time. So he speaks to Peter, and he says, Peter, you're the guy I'm building my church on. You're going to lead this ragtag band after I'm gone. And Peter must have been thinking, darn right. I'm a man. I can do this. But I want to call your attention to the fact that Jesus was speaking this, still knowing what Peter was going to do. Interesting. We'll come back to that. We also have James and John. We talked about these, these rascals last week. They're the two that had their mama come and say, hey, can you make sure that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are going to be at the right hand and the left hand of the throne when you, get to he- when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus you know, lovingly just says, "You know, only the father can know that. But I want to dig into their conversation a little bit more. They said, hey, Jesus, would you do whatever we ask of you? Which is almost childlike, isn't it? It's like if one of my kids walking up and say, I got something for you, Dad, but you can't say no. That's exactly what these guys do. Jesus, we want to ask you something, but you got to say yes. And they say, can we sit at the right hand? And Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't know what you guys are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They answered, we can Of course, they have absolutely no, they don't know. They have absolutely no idea what this cup is. They don't know what the baptism is. But Jesus' response is interesting. He says, you will drink the cup that I drink from. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. By this, Jesus was essentially saying, you guys are going to follow me both in my victories but in my sufferings. Jesus knew this day day was coming, this chaotic moment when we see these different groups doing what they do in response to a complete chaotic breakdown of what Jesus had been building for three years. Yet we know several things about this. One, it was inevitable. Jesus saw it coming. He said so. And yet the hearts of each one of these groups of people are revealed in such a distinct, powerful way that I think it really requires us to look at it in a little more detail. Because the truth is, folks, even when James and John said, yes, we can drink of the cup you drink from, no, they couldn't. Because what Jesus was talking about was not a party cup, not a stein full of celebratory drink. He was showing them a cup of suffering, the very cup that Jesus asked the Father to not make him drink from. Father, if there's any other way that I can fulfill the destiny that you have for me, is there any other cup that I can drink from? And the Father, of course, through prayer, doesn't say a word. And Jesus knows, and he says, yep, not my will be done, but your will be done. The very same cup is now presented to these group of men. And what we find is these four groups, first of all, are those who betray. When the cup is presented, excuse me, I'm sorry, when the cup is presented, when they're placed in the moment of of struggle and of battle and of chaos, that moment that all of us will come to in our life. At some point, that place of of indecision coming into our own garden of Gethsemane where we have to make a decision. Do we follow him or do we go our own way? The first, of course, was Judas and what I would call the Judas spirit and those who betray and those who walk in that Judas spirit are only walking in their selfish motives. Here's Judas for 40 pieces of silver sells the Son of God to sinners. And you may say, well, gosh, thank God none of us are Judas's. You think? I don't think so. I think we got a few. Matter of fact, I think we got a little bit of Judas in all of us. Because when the moment the time of the, of crisis comes in our life, the moment we've got to make a decision whether we do what Jesus has taught us to do, to walk in what Jesus has told us to walk in, and we're presented with a situation, and, and there we are. We're, we're, we're looking at our Christianity. We're, we're, we're beginning to wonder about what's going on in the world. What are they teaching us? And, and what is this uprising of this anti-Christ kind of teaching that's going on in our universities and, and our political systems. And, and even this, this whole concept is, is prophesied that in the last days that, that children would rise up against parents and parents would turn their children in so that our children could be sent away to places where they'd be taught that the Bible is no longer true. They would be taught that, 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 that look, there is hate speech out there and, and before too long, if not already, you need to report them. You need to let them know that that what they're doing, what they're talking about, this Jesus speech, this, this intolerant kind of religion needs to be reported. It's hate. It's right upon us. You don't think that the heart of Judas is already coming out of even some Christians right now? Those who've grown up in the faith. Those who used to sing as little cute Cupid children say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible says so. And they raised their hand in their classes and with those impish, loving faces with rosy cheeks would would do that only to later betray and deny the Son of God. Oh yeah, we've got Judas. Then the next group, those who attack. Well, there was that one guy who's passionately misguided. And so passion is something we value today. Passion and energy is something we value a lot, but we see a lot of misguided passion. We see a lot of people that are, that are, that are full of energy and full of desire to make right, to build heaven here on earth, whether it, be, whether it be through a political system, whatever it be, but a lot of energy and a lot of excitement and, 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 and purpose, but completely misguided. Even like Paul Here we find Paul is is one of these, attacking Christians, lashing out. His motives are pure. And he even mentions that. He says, God, my father, he he said, the only reason why I was rescued was because I thought I was doing God a, a service. Until he knocked me off my donkey and said, why are you fighting against me? And he says, I don't know who you are. He says, well, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And, of course, Paul's life is completely transformed. But going back to this guy in the garden, who, we don't know who it was, but he, and, and he gathered up some swords, and Jesus said, we got to get ready for the fight. Of course, he's talking about a spiritual fight. And, and the guy says, hey, we got some swords. And Jesus said, well, that's fine. That's all we need. And so this guy, in all of his, in, in, in all of his rage and anger and out of, his car, out of his heart comes this desire to want to, to advance the kingdom of God by striking and killing and drawing blood. Not good. Jesus says, stop that. Heals the servant's ear. It's revealed. The press, the chaotic moment, what comes out of him is rage and anger and in many ways just an infantile way of thinking how we can handle this. A misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is all about. Another group. Thirdly, those who flee. And again, this was everyone. With the exception of maybe John. We get a lot more detail of what happened. Someone had to have been there to record it, and John is the one. So it's likely John went with them all the way, but again, that's somewhat conjecture. But what we do know is is almost all of them, and for our purposes today, they all fled. Because when the reality of them having to drink the cup of potential persecution, to be baptized with the fire... And as he's being led away, those words that Jesus spoke must have been ringing hollow in their ears. Follow me. I'm not following him. You kidding me? Those are Roman soldiers. They don't play. They got, they got those, those, uh, those short swords, double-edged swords, killing weapons. These are killers the most professional killers on the planet, well-known to, de- to have dominated every, civi- every, every civilization during that time. And here they are. You think, I'm hanging around? And off they run. Every step they take, the guilt builds. Every block, every half a mile, every quarter mile, every, di- every step is full of struggle, of condemnation, of shame and guilt. I've abandoned the Lord. Overwhelmed by the circumstances and in fear. Ah, do we have those among us? Does that rise up in my heart? Sure it does. When I'm faced with an attack, when I'm faced to the reality of what it's going to really take to follow the Lord, when it's really what it's going to take to really do what God has told me to say in the Bible, and I've conveniently been able to ignore it for such a long time. I've been able to conveniently look at my life in the context of, of just, well, you know, that's the whole Christian thing. I, I'm going to do my own thing. God helps those who help themselves. See ya. And yet, deep down in our hearts, we've really abandoned the Lord. We've let the circumstances of our life, we've let the fears of our heart, and we've run, we've fled, we've pulled away, we've stopped going to church, we've pulled away from Christians, and we found ourselves in bars and, and brothels, we've found ourselves in places where we've, we're, you know, partying and trying to numb our brains from the reality, the truth. I can't drink the cup. I can't be baptized with this fire. I will not go into that fire. And fourthly, those who deny. Peter, we start with one man, we end with one one man. Peter's the hardest one to look at. So much hope, so much reality of of his situation. When he's pressed, when he is pressed, when he's put in the, the place of having to drink the cup that is presented to him, he will not drink. He will not let the fire do it. Mm-mm, too hot for me. Too bitter of a drink. His loyalty is tested to the nth degree. A man most loyal. Do we have Peters among us? Sure, we do. We've all been there at one point in our lives. Will we stand for what's right? Will we? I've heard Christians, I get emails. Sometimes I get emails from people who won't even tell me who they are. They'll send me an email from some rogue account, and they'll share their heart on it, and they'll just say, I can't believe that you stand for this, 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 and this, when it's clearly, have we not learned? Have we not grown? And I just shake my head. You will not drink the cup, will you? You will continue to make an excuse for man's sin, and thus continue to build up in your life a judgment. A judgment. See, when we think of the cup, when we think of the cup, we think of what Jesus was actually doing there. You know, we get to this point, and and here, this is as far deep as into the point of struggle we're going to go. It all goes up here from here. But Jesus got to that point where he had to do what? He had to trust his father. And the scripture tells us that apparently he did because it says this, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorned its shame. He drank the cup and he drank it fully. And if we're ever to drink this cup... If you're ever going to, that cup is going to be presented to you today. If you're ever going to be able to drink deeply of what God has for your life, you have to get a couple of things straight. Number one, that you trust implicitly your heavenly father who has absolutely the best things in store for you. That it is the joy that is set before you. That you believe that on the other side of the garden of Gethsemane is a better day. Is a time of rejoicing. Folks, let me tell you what that looks like. Skipping ahead here in my notes. The guys flee. But he gets word back to the guys. After the resurrection, they're all disillusioned. They're all struggling. But they get word that he's been raised from the dead. And so he tells the ladies, go tell the guys, I'll meet him in Galilee. I'll be there so now they got a choice. Do we go? And it's interesting because I don't think their initial response was to go because they're struggling. They're filled with um, failure, shame. He might be raised from the dead, but he doesn't want to see us. For all we've done to betray the Lord, all that we've done to deny the Lord, all that we have done to attack and to to do what we've done, there's no way we can make, but it's funny because then they go say, well, what do you want to do? Let's go fishing. Or where do you want to go fishing? Mm, Galilee? Maybe. Maybe, just maybe, he will be there. And maybe, just maybe, he's got something for me. So they go, and they fish. Again, going back to what they were doing before. They fished all night, nothing happened. Because see, that's what happened. I mean, we're not, the the, the story, the little, the minutia of these stories, the details of which are not supposed to be lost. Here they are, they're going back to their old ways, and they throw the net in, nothing happens. Then, they see him. There he is on the beach. Because you think about your own life. When you've denied him, when you've pulled away, when you've, you've gotten angry and you've, you've sacrificed, you've, you've, you've flushed down the toilet, your own hope and future because of the things that you've done in response. And yet deep, deep, deep down inside, you hope and you wonder, will God receive me back? Will God be there for me? And there those guys are out in the boat and they see a stranger and he says, hey, throw your net out. Try it again. And they do. Throw it out. The story tells us that they caught such a large load of fish that the net began to pull down. They were afraid it was going to break, yet it didn't break. It got it up. They started moving it in, and then one of the guys says, wait a minute, that's the Lord. And there's only one who jumps out of the boat. And I love it because it's that Peter. The very one who had the most to be ashamed of. But we're all there, man. We'd all be there. We'd be like, no, man, that's, where will we go? He's got the words of life. And so he pulls his cloak on, he jumps in, acts like a little kid, the leader of the band. He's swimming. You can see him just squirming. He gets up there. Jesus. Jesus. No words are exchanged because the look on his face says everything. I love you. And Peter, I knew this was going to happen. I know what you need. I know who you are. I know who you're going to become. And I know the things in your life that you're going through right now, the denials, the struggles, the fleeing, the attacks, all of it is going to come out. It's what you do with it. Get your butt back to the Sea of Galilee and back to your Savior. And there he is. And he calls him over and he says, hey, let's cook some of those fish you just caught. 153 to be specific. Uh, Scholars kind of go back and forth as to why they mentioned 153. I found some interesting things about that, but I won't go into it. He sits down and begins to cook the fish. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you you love me more than these? That's curious because the ancients, Augustine and earlier, they thought that what Jesus was saying, the fish. Do you love me more than these? Modern scholars believe that in a broader interpretation and that he was talking about all the other disciples. I think it's kind of a combination of both because I can see both, of him looking at him and saying, Peter, do you love me more than what you just experienced? This miracle. Do you love me more than that? Do you love me more than the 153 fish that you just remarkably caught? Which was God, by the way. Or do you love me more than these guys, your family, these brothers that you've been with for three years still sticking together? But Jesus looked at him and he said, you know I love you more. Isn't that really what the heart of it is? Out of all of our struggles, out of all of our battles, what it really needs to come out in the press, what really needs to come out at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is it, most certainly what's going to come is our own denials, our own struggles, our own weaknesses, our own self-centeredness. It's going to come out. But where we need to end up is what will flow out of us. And you need to remember this, that what will come in the pressing is the oil. And what is the oil? God's grace. God's anointing. God's hope and future for you. I can't sugarcoat this message. There is no other cup. Do not fool yourselves. Do not try to create a designer Jesus. Do not try to reinterpret the Bible. Do not try to think that you can give yourself to flesh and carnality in this life and experience the fullness of Christ. That's foolishness. But it will be through the press of our surrender to the will of God for your life that it will come. It is the joy that he's setting before you. But look, it, doesn't that make complete sense? We all understand that, it, that it's through sacrifice, that it is through patience, that it is, in, it is endurance, that the greatest things are created. We see it in nature. We see it with money. We see it in everything. And a reminder to us that as we, we bend the knee to our Savior, when we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, I don't know why. I, you tell me I need to stick it out in this marriage. You tell me I need to, to, to do what's right by with my money. And you tell me that I, sh- I should stop doing that because it's bringing addiction into my life. You're telling me that I need to, 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 to stop pursuing that, that I need to now come and surrender my wife. Lord, is there any other way that I can have a happy life without doing all of that? No. Absolutely not. As a Christian, there's one cup, there's one baptism. You're here today because you want to hear the hope, and here is the hope the guarantee that when you do submit and surrender your will to God, there is joy that comes in the morning, there is forgiveness there by the lake in the Sea of Galilee, there is all of the promises. Peter did go on to be the leader of the church. Peter did go on to do amazing things. Now, he had a baptism that he endured. He finally was baptized in his death. And when they crucified him, the legend is that he said, no, don't crucify me like Jesus. Turn me upside down. I do not, I'm not worthy of being crucified like him. There's a man who was thoroughly convinced that what he did for him was beyond Measure. We're probably not called to die that that way. We're probably all going to live long lives and, and a life in here, but it doesn't mean that we won't have our own crosses. It doesn't mean that we won't all have a chance to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. As a matter of fact, we will. And in that Garden of Decision, my friends, right there, you are presented with an opportunity to be one who denies, one who attacks one who runs, and one who betrays. But knowing what we know, the grace that we could have, the grace that could be ours today, we have the benefit of what this story tells us. We have the benefit of the Holy Spirit who will teach us. We have the benefit of Jesus in heaven cheering us on. We don't have to do that. And even if we did even if we did. He's waiting by the shore to receive you today. But you got to go to him. You can stay in the boat or you can swim up to him and look him right in the eye and say, Lord, I'm ready to drink of the cup. I'm ready to do what you've called me to do because I hate living here. I hate living in a Officialist existence, being overwhelmed by my own guilt and shame, being constantly reminded of my shortcomings. I want a hope in the future, and it begins with drinking of the cup. So, folks, we have a decision today. It's not a hard one, because you've heard me share this before that when we submit our will to Him, when not we surrender to our Savior. Let's let's remember who we're submitting to. <laughs> The one who loves you, the one who died for you, the one who wants to give you hope in the future, who who wants to, to, to do wonderful things in your life, but it begins there. Let's get rid of the faulty, struggling thing that we have in our hand and let him have that where he can give us back more than we could ever ask or think. That is the message. That's what God has for you today. stand up. You've been listening to Valley's Podcast. Valley Community Church is located at 1215 Julian R. Allsbrook Highway in Weldon, North Carolina. We invite you to attend one of our Sunday morning services at 8.30, 10, or 11.30 a.m. Visit us at valleychurch.us or our Valley app for more information about our ministry.